Well, we're going to be continuing on in our series in the Gospel of Luke. would encourage you, if you don't have your Bible, go grab your Bible and uh, get it out. Make sure you're open to Luke chapter 18. We're going to finish up some verses in Luke 18 and then move into chapter 19. I titled the sermon, Believing is Seen. Believing is Seen. Instead of seeing is believing, what we find in this passage is that it's just the opposite. Believing is seeing. We are very quickly approaching the work of Christ as he arrives in Jerusalem. So actually in chapter 19, toward the end of 19, the triumphal entry occurs. And from that point forward, a series of events just unfold one right after another. It is the Passion Week that begins. And so I'm looking forward to just walking through slowly, verse by verse, and unpacking those uh, those moments that Luke has recorded for us, uh, beginning really in, in 19 in Jerusalem. Uh, there's just a couple more interactions that I want to cover as we make our way there. Uh, let's begin in verse 31 of chapter 18. I called these verses redemptive resolve. Redemptive resolve. Taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets, will be accomplished. Now, what's fascinating is that Jesus is prophesying about the fulfillment of prophecies. If you, th- you think about it, it's a double prophecy here. He's prophesying it's going to happen just as it's been prophesied. And sure enough, it, it did. So this is the third time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus has told his disciples. He pulls them aside and he says, listen, guys, guys, let me tell you again, one last time. Everything that's been written is going to be fulfilled. He goes on to say this, very specific. For he, the Son of Man, Jesus himself, will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Now, think about this. If you are one of Jesus' disciples and he's saying these things to you, you're trying to process this. What, what, what are you saying, Jesus? And the previous two times that he shared this with them, they just completely didn't get it. Remember, no comprendo? Remember that sermon? The same thing here. They don't get it. They don't understand. Jesus gives some very clear detail here that is really referring to some of those prophecies that were made Um, one of the things that jumped out for me is both Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, elements of both are in view in the words that Jesus lays out right here. Now, there are other uh, prophecies certainly as well, and all of the Old Testament sacrificial system is about to find its fulfillment as the lamb lays his life down, the innocent lamb, the, the, the lamb without blemish lays his life down, the very hour that the sacrificial lamb was slain. Jesus dies. Uh, Incredible how all of these things are fulfilled. The disciples understood none of these things. Uh, This saying was hidden from them. They didn't grasp what was said. Look at this. Um, He says it three different ways. Sum it up. They don't get it, right? They don't understand it. They don't grasp it. It was hidden from them. Jesus says, see, and they say, we can't. We don't get, what are are you talking about? Nothing of what he is saying in this fits into the paradigm of Messiah. What do you mean? 
we're going to Jerusalem. We're going there to take over, right? This is a political thing. We're going to deal with the Romans. We're going to put the, the Davidic throne back into place. You're going to reign, and we're going to be right there, hopefully sitting on your right and your left, right? As James and John are arguing right about now in this, in this trip up, the other Gospels record. They don't understand what Jesus is talking about. So the question is, why does he say it? Why, three times, does he say something that all of his disciples just completely don't understand? This is, I believe, why. He wants to show them this is plan A. This is the plan. There is nothing that is about to unfold that is taking Jesus by surprise. He's already said it's going to happen. And it happened exactly as he said it would, as the prophets of old said it would. This is plan A. In fact, if you think about it, this is the plan that was put in place in the sovereign ordination of God before he spoke the words, let there be light. Before anything was made, the universe had a, a purpose, and the purpose of God's work in creation itself was to bring it to the culmination of the high point of his revelation, to show his glory uniquely in dealing with sin and ransoming sinners, showing mercy and grace, which otherwise would not be in view, showing that, that he is a God of compassion and forgiveness, which otherwise would, would not be on display. The wrath of God would be, hell would be filled, heaven would be empty. This is plan A. It always was. Jesus knows this. He knows what's coming. Now, sometimes we lose this. Um, if you're a disciple and you're cruising along, you're, 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 you're making your way toward Jerusalem, you may be a little nervous because the crowds and there's some hostility and things, but I don't think without fully grasping what is coming your way, I don't think you could really feel the weight of what Jesus is beginning to carry. I mean, he, he knows exactly what's going to unfold. And he walks step by step toward Jerusalem. He has set his faith. It is redemptive resolve. He is going to lay his life down. This is what he said in John 10. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So he's, he's walking in obedience to the Father to fulfill the mission he was given, which was go, live in perfect obedience, lay down your life, and take it back up again, thus securing salvation for all who trust in him. An incredible gift. So, with that as a backdrop, a backdrop we get a, a reminder of where we're at. We're, we're, we're still on this journey, and Luke puts it there to remind us how close we are. We're coming to Jericho, which is just at the top of the Dead Sea, and it, the next stop is Jerusalem. We are going from Jericho up to Jerusalem, uh, a very short path. It was about a day walk, and uh, Jesus would have done this a number of times before. And so we're here arriving in Jericho, and we meet what I'm calling the blind-sighted beggar. The blind-sighted beggar. Let's read verse uh, 35. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. 
And hearing the crowd uh, going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Okay, so let's, uh, let's get ourselves in this story. If you are this beggar, actually we learn in the Gospel of Mark that his name was Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. I'm going to call him Bart for short, okay? So Bart is a blind man. He wakes up in the morning just like any other day. And he either has to ask for help to get to the city gate of, of Jericho, or he's able to, to take a, a stick of some sort and, and, and kind of hobble his way over to the gate where he sits down, where he sits every day and begs for alms. That's how he lives and, and, and conducts his life. He's, he's asking for money. He's asking for food, whatever he can to sustain himself. And it's really only God's grace that he is still alive in a culture and society like this if it wasn't for the generosity of the people, this man would stand no chance of survival. It's an agricultural society. If you can't see, you can't plant, you can't have herds and, and flocks, you're a dead man. You can't eat. So here he is. He's at the city gate, and it's a normal day. He hears the birds. Now, remember, you can't see. Everybody close your eyes. Close your eyes. What happens immediately when you close your eyes is your ears begin to, to, to make up the difference. Well, what is it that I hear? What is that? Oh, okay, familiar voice. That, that guy goes by every single morning at this time. Here's this donkey. I can tell by the steps as he's moving out. I know who that is. And all of a sudden, he hears this, this rustling. You still have your eyes closed? Keep them closed, okay? There's, there's more people coming. What is this? And someone, someone says the name Jesus, and another, and he stops and he says, wait a second. Okay, you can open them. What, what, what is this? What's going on? So apparently there was a bit of an entourage that was traveling with Jesus. Remember, we're three years into his ministry. He is extremely popular. There are thousands of people who have chosen to follow him, and it's extremely customary for a rabbi to teach while he's on the way, on the road. And so the disciples are certainly with him, but so are many other people. And at this point, they're getting excited to get to Jericho. There's probably food and water, and so people are, are up in front of Jesus as they get closer to the city. And this crowd begins to file in to Jericho. And as they go by, Bart is saying, what's happening? What's going on? Is this a procession? Is, it, is this a funeral? What, what is this? Someone says, listen, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. This is not just another day. All of a sudden, he hears this. Oh, Jesus of Nazareth. And you've got to think that somehow along the way, he has heard. He has either heard Jesus preach, or he has talked to people that he has preached to. He has maybe uh, interacted or heard stories as he sits at the city gate, maybe overheard people talking about how Jesus has healed people, how Jesus has, has, has done things that no one else has ever done. Maybe he picked up a conversation of those who had chosen to follow Jesus as Savior, as the Messiah. And he was like, man, I wonder if he is the Messiah. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. The kids are excited. The people are coming. The crowd, the volume goes up. How's he going to respond? Listen to what he does. Bart 
cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Can you picture this going down? He begins to make a scene. He is the guy who's always at the gate. And he's begging, but he does so quietly. He's not in people's way. He's not annoying. He's just there. It's Bart. He's at the gate. Now, he's making a scene. People are like, Bart, pipe down, will you? Just leave him alone. He doesn't care about you. Don't, don't mess with him. Will you be quiet? And the people begin to rebuke him. Try to get him to quiet down. Knock it off. What he cries reveals what he believes. He's blind, but this man believes. Listen to this, this title. Jesus, Son of David. There it is. That's the cue. That's how we know what this man believes about Jesus. He has heard and he believes. He has trusted. This is, in fact, the Messiah. This is a messianic title. No one is referred to as the son of David, but the Messiah is. Son of David. And then he cries out, have mercy, have mercy on me. What does that tell us? Does Bart believe that he deserves this? No, he cries for mercy. He's asking the the son of David, the Messiah, to show him mercy mercy. And he cries out again and again and again. He doesn't quit, even though the people tell him to. Pipe down, Bart. No, he won't. He persists. He cried out all the more. It's almost like the more they tried to quiet him up, the the louder he got. And it got so loud, so over the top, all of the noise of the crowd, Bart's voice was carrying over it all. And it worked. It worked. Jesus stopped, probably right near the city gate. All the people, all the hubbub. He stopped, and he commanded that Bart, Bartimaeus, be brought over to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith has saved you. Most literally, that's the right interpretation. I think the more precise interpretation rather than just made you well, right? Sozo is the word. It is, it is far more than just physical healing. Your faith has saved you. Bartimaeus experiences the power of God. It's interesting that Jesus asked the question. You, you you stop, and by now, I mean, we've had so many different interactions of Jesus interacting here with, with people in need, right? Sometimes he touches them. Sometimes he just speaks words, and they are healed. Sometimes he tells them to go do things. In this occasion, Jesus says, what would you like me to do for you? Now, that's an interesting question, isn't it? If you're a blind man, and you ask that question, there are a couple different ways you could answer And the way you would answer depends upon what you believe 
that the man is capable of doing. Bartimaeus believes that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And so he doesn't ask for alms. He doesn't ask for food or, or money. He asks for a miracle because he is convinced. His faith is fixed on Christ. He believes that Jesus is able, in fact, to do this. And his faith is well-placed in Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus speaks a word, and the man has his eyes opened. Now, again, we've got to feel this. Just put yourself there. Imagine. Now, was he blind from birth? We don't know. How long has he been blind? It seems like some time. So in any case, his eyes are opened, and they're not partially healed. He is fully healed. His, he's, he's seen for the first time, and who do you think he sees? The first face he beholds is the face of his Savior. What would that sound like? What would that look like? But more than that, he's given a new heart. He's brought to life. He has spiritual life now. He is saved. Immediately, he recovered his sight as Jesus commanded, and he followed him. He followed Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. Isn't that something? What, what, what a scene that would be to, to experience, to watch. With a word, just recover your sight. It's done. People went from shushing to celebrating. It's interesting how quickly the dynamic can change. Jesus is coming. It's all celebration. Important people, right? That's who he's here to see. Jericho, get all of the, the, the important people out. Bart, pipe down. He doesn't have time for you. It's Jesus. He's important. Get the, get the well-dressed people, the people with lots of influence, right? The rich people. Bring out the people who are put together. And who's the first person Jesus goes to? Bart, sitting at the city gate. He doesn't look over him. He looks at him, calls him to him. He seeks him out as he hears him cry for mercy. Hmm. To believe is to see, friends. To believe in Jesus is to see with eyes open. That is the effect of trusting in Christ. We sing a song, Open the Eyes of My Heart. We we know the only way that that's possible is by a miracle of God's grace. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in the proclamation of the gospel that saves people. God saves people. And what happened there that day? This blind man was made to see and saved. That still happens, friends, every day all around the world. To believe in Jesus is to see like you've never seen before. Some people need evidence. They say, listen, I just have to see proof. I need, I need proof and evidence. Friends, it's right here. It's right here. Jesus even gives a special blessing to those who do not see and yet believe. Remember doubting Thomas? Remember that interaction? Blessed are you who have not seen and believe. That's us. By grace, by grace, by grace. Through faith, we see. 
Now let's continue on. Jesus heads on into Jericho, this, uh, this fascinating city. It was a, a city that was bustling. It was a, a gigantic trade cross-section uh, uh, of the lower part um, of, of Israel. It was moving very close to Jerusalem. Uh, it's actually referred to as the City of Roses. It was very fertile, um, a, a lot of great farmland, right on the edge of the Judean wilderness where Jesus was tested by Satan for 40 days right up uh, over toward Jerusalem. So between um, Jericho and Jerusalem is some wilderness area, and it's only about a day's walk. So you have lots of uh, soldiers who are stationed here to guard it and protect it. You have lots of trade taking place, and you actually have a lot of uh, leadership in uh, the Jewish faith of those who are working in the temple. So you have priests and uh, Levites, who will make the trek back and forth and live in Jericho. The humbly generous tax man, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a, na- a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see Jesus, uh, to see who Jesus was, but, not on account, uh, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was uh, small of stature. Isn't it great how the Bible is so like PC when it talks about people who are short, right? It it doesn't call him short. It just says he was small of stature. That's awesome. I love it. So here we meet Zacchaeus. Uh, Kids, I've got a coloring page. Hopefully you've got it already. Your parents hooked you up and you've been coloring on this. Here we come. Now, uh, this is when your coloring is going to come to life. This is the story. Zacchaeus. Now, if you learned these songs in Sunday school, when I was a kid, we learned this one. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man. He was small of stature, okay? A wee little man was he. He was also the chief tax collector for Jericho. And I learned more about this this week. This is fascinating. There were three primary locations of tax gathering in inland Israel. One was Capernaum, one was Jericho, the other was Jerusalem. Now, we've been in Luke. Do you remember who the tax collector was from Capernaum? Levi. Jesus got him already, okay? Jesus got the northern tax uh, cross point in Levi. He is one of the disciples. He's been with Jesus for a long time. Now he comes into Jericho. Think of this. This is this is, this is going to be two out of three. He is the chief tax collector, which means he's the boss. If this was the mob, he's the, uh, the mob boss. Yeah, he's the big guy, although he's the little guy. So it kind of fits the, the, the scene, you know, Bugsy or something. It, it, it kind of, I, I think, I don't know, I think mob, you know. He's a very rich man. Now, based upon where we were last week, What do we need to recall? A very rich man. What should that trigger for us? Luke has arranged this purposely. We were just in a passage. The title of last week's sermon was An Impossible Salvation, right? The the rich young ruler, he walked away. Hmm. We have a very rich man. The first thought we should have is, oh man, how in the world is this man going to be saved? Jesus just said it's impossible with man, but with God, it's possible. So, let's see. In fact, 
Luke 18, 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's ringing in our ears. How does this unfold? A little more about Zacchaeus. Small of stature, a wee little man. He was hated intensely by the crowd, uh, unable to see Jesus as he came. Just a few things to think. First of all, how do you rise to be the chief tax collector if you're small of stature? You don't do it by brute force, right? Zacchaeus is not the bouncer. He's not the bruiser. He's not the enforcer. He is the power behind the brute force, right? He has in, in his uh, uh, employ Roman soldiers, who beat it out of people and get him the money that he wants. He has in his employ uh, lower-level tax collectors who go and do his bidding, and they give him a portion of what they gather. He is the top dog. It's likely to assume that this man was known, even though small, for being pretty brutal. He got the job done. The Romans advanced his career. He's the top man on the totem pole. He's got a very successful and lucrative tax collection happening in Jericho. And he is hated by the crowd. So it's not, it's not hard to imagine why he can't get up through the crowd to see Jesus. The crowd does not like Zacchaeus. right? He's not going to just go bouncing in, hey, hey, Joe, arm around him. What's going on, man? Wh- wh- tell me about this Jesus. No. He has no friends. No, no friends who are anything but, but sinners and, 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 you know, the scum of the earth, as it were, criminals. That's his friends. Roman soldiers, he's a traitor to his people. This is not the kind of man who just jumps into a crowd of Jewish people. I find it interesting that he doesn't leverage his, his power or his force to make clear a path, get the Roman soldiers in there with their spears. Let me in. I'm coming through. He doesn't do that. He wants to see Jesus, but he's unable. So, what's he going to do? He runs ahead as Jesus comes down through the city, and he climbs up in a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. This is totally unexpected. Okay, first of all, he ran. For a Jewish man, it's not what you would ever expect a Jewish man to do. He runs, and then he climbs up in a tree. For a dignified Jewish man, this is childlike behavior, right? He wants to see Jesus, and he's willing to do whatever he needs to do. Now, it's likely that when he was climbing up in the tree, he was trying to find a place where he could kind of hide a little bit because, you know, he's got to keep some dignity. Let me show you uh, a, a, a not small of stature young man in a sycamore tree in Israel. Okay, this is not Zacchaeus. This is my son, Ethan. And, uh, he's 6'10", so he would have towered over Zacchaeus. And this is a smaller uh, sycamore tree. But I wanted to show you this because I wanted, want you to see how easy it is to climb a tree like this. They have a, typically a fairly short uh, trunk with these branches that go off, and they're just easy to climb. Uh, the bark is, isn't too bad, kind of smooth. And uh, so here's a bigger tree that I want to show you. And a, and a young guy that crawled up in this sycamore tree during a tour of Israel uh, with a group down below so he could hear the leader talk. Um, 
This tree is uh, a little sparse for foliage. Um, there are some sycamore figs that I've seen in Israel that have a lot more body to the tree itself. It's likely that, I mean, these things can get up to 40 feet tall. Uh, it's likely that the tree Zacchaeus chose had a little more cover. In any case, he crawls up in this tree, and he's sitting up on the branch, and Jesus is passing by the way. He just wants to see him. He has to see Jesus. Hmm. It's a desperate longing. A desperate longing. Now, here's what's interesting. Both the disciples in the first section, as Jesus shared what's going to happen, they didn't understand. It was hidden. They couldn't see. And then we come to a blind man. He literally can't see. And here we come to Zacchaeus. He can't see either because he's short. They're all desperate to understand, desperate to see. They're trying their best. When Jesus came to the place where Zacchaeus was in the tree, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. <laughs> okay, first of all, uh, he calls him by name. Okay, they don't know each other. Zacchaeus wants to just see Jesus. He doesn't even know. He wants to see who he is. All of a sudden, Jesus looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, it's, it's bad enough that he spotted him in the tree. And then he just flat out calls him by name. Hey, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. Which means he probably wasn't, you know, two feet off the ground. He had to climb down the tree in front of all of these people who had now stopped and they're all staring at the tax man in the tree. Hmm. I must stay at your house today. I must. What does that tell us? Jesus knows exactly what his plan is. He knows where the tree is. He seeks Zacchaeus out. He calls him by name and he says, we must do this. He's on a mission. It reminds me of in the Gospel of John when Jesus says, all that the Father has given to me will come to me and I will lose none of all that he has given, but I will raise them up on the last day. He is seeking and saving those whom the Father has given. And this man is one. One of the sheep that God has given to his son. I must stay at your house today. He is spotted and called by name. This is a moment where Zacchaeus has to process quite quickly how he's going to respond. And we begin to learn how, how is God working in the heart of Zacchaeus right now? There's a number of responses he could have had, right? He could have been like, oh, who, me? No, I was just going for a fig, right? I, I, what do you mean? Who, who are you? It just playing off, like, I'm, I'm not trying to see you. He could have been like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm too good for this. You can't come to my house. He could have gone on a power trip. He could have said he had more important things to do. He could have made up a story. There's all kinds of responses. His pride was hurt. All these people are staring at him, and he's treed. Instead, listen to how he responds. He hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. 
And when they saw it, the crowd, the, the people around, they saw it, they grumbled. It says, they grumbled. They all grumbled. What, what are we to take of that? Is it the crowd? Is it the disciples? Well, by now, we should know better than to grumble when Jesus eats and drinks with sinners and tax collectors. That's what Jesus does. He seeks out and saves. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. No self-respecting Jewish rabbi would ever, ever do this. Let alone, I mean, go into the home of a tax collector or a sinner, but, but to eat with him and to stay there the night. Oh, it's just beyond impossibility. And that's exactly what Jesus, he announces it to everybody. I've chosen you. I'm calling you by name. Let's go. I'm staying at your house. Joy and grumbling come together. The joy of Zacchaeus, his delight that Jesus would call him by name and invite himself over. He's delighted. And everyone else begins to grumble. Zacchaeus stood. Now, before we get to this, just, I want you to just kind of, we've got to fill in the scene here. Jesus went with him to his house. What does Jesus do? We know by now. We, we've been in Luke long enough. We, we know what's taken place. They've eaten, and Jesus has done what? Jesus has proclaimed the gospel. He has called him to repentance. He has called him to the kingdom, right? What he does with everybody. He doesn't just hang out with sinners to make new friends, to kill time, to get free food. He is there to share the good news of the gospel with this man, this greatest sinner, the most unsavable man in Jericho. He preaches the gospel to him. Now, look at the response. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and he had a lot, okay, just we know that, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, listen to this response. This is how we know the gospel has been proclaimed. Today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. He has shown himself to be a son of Ab a true son of Abraham. How? By faith. By faith. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's one of the most significant statements of Jesus' ministry and purpose recorded in the Bible. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The transformation is spectacular. Zacchaeus is a changed man. If you're keeping track of these things, you can put one in the column of rich man, saved. The impossible salvation, the rich young ruler, how did he respond? I'll take the money. That's, that's too much, Jesus. You're asking far too much. And he walks away. Oh, how impossible it is for anyone to be saved without the Lord. Who can be saved, they say? No one. But with God, 
It's possible. And Jesus just shows it. Rich man saved. Zacchaeus is a new man. He's still a wee little man, but he's a new man with a big heart. A new man with a big heart. The fruit of repentance is on display. He is resolved to now take what he has and distribute it. He sees the resources that God has allowed him, and and in many ways, sinfully, he has defrauded people. He has ripped them off. He has taken goods that he shouldn't have, and he seeks to give them back now. It is on display. The fruit of repentance is in view. Friends, sometimes the emphasis is on the moment of conversion. And I think we ought to be careful of this. If we focus too much on the, the words that we say or the, the, the moment and, and we forget that there's, there's fruit that is to be displayed, true faith is going to show itself in works. It's going to make, make visible the lordship of Christ, the turning from sin and the turning to Christ. It's going to show itself. Sin is stood against. Righteousness is pursued by the grace of God and in His strength and power. The fruit of repentance on display. A new heart. A new man. Our response this morning. How might the Lord land these stories in our lives? Think about uh, these, these, these two men in particular. I love to think about how Jesus goes into the margins, right? Jesus is the Savior who is not on Main Street. He is the Savior who is willing to go off into the margins, in the alleyways, back in those places where people who aren't put together are. He doesn't stand in the city square and call all the righteous, all the impressive people, all the gifted people, hey, come, all you good people, come, you deserve to be with me. That's not what he's saying. And in both of these cases, he seeks these men out and he saves them. He meets them right where they're at. The poor, blind beggar and the rich, blind tax man. They believe and they see. They believe and they see. How does it meet us today? Well, if you're here today, And you do not see. When you look at Jesus, you see just a man. You see maybe someone else's Savior, but you don't see the most spectacular, glorious Savior of your sins the world has ever known. You don't see that when you look at Jesus. Then I would just say, look again. Right? Look again and believe that He died for your sins. He is the gift of God that came to take upon Himself all of your sins and pay for the wrath that you deserve. Look again. Cry out like we said last week. Lord, save me. I believe in You. I trust in You. I turn from my sins. I look to You. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Be my life, my King. And you will know what it means to see to see with eyes opened to the wonder of God. Believers, I would encourage us to join Jesus in the margins. Friends, we are called 
in the work of our ministry as well, to meet people in the places when they're not put together, right? That's what it means to be holding out hope. We're not trying to find everybody who's got it all figured out, all put together, all the nice and, and, and happy people, everybody, uh, you know, you qualify. Come and, come and worship with us. That's not what we're saying. We're saying if you, if you need a Savior, we know where to go. Let's point the way. So I would ask you, in your life, who comes to mind? Who, who is easy to overlook? Who's the person that you are tempted to, to shush? Oh, pipe down, there he goes again. Griping and complaining, moaning and groaning. Just leave him alone. Jesus, you're probably so tired of him, and so am I. It, no, that's where Jesus is. And he's saying, hey, Christians, come over here. Join me in the margins. We can be the hands and feet of Jesus. We can be the words of hope and encouragement. There may be people in our congregation who have been overlooked. There may be people, certainly during this period of, of corona and all this separation, people who just need encouragement. Let's join Jesus in the margins and watch him work. Watch him work. He seeks and saves the lost, and he uses us to do it. That's our mission, friends. That's our purpose in this life. Until he returns. Let's pray. Lord, we give praise to you and thanks that you are so good, that you would meet us in our need, that you would call us out of, of our darkness, that you, you, you would come to us in our lost place and condition. We could never save ourselves. We could never prove ourselves worthy. We, we certainly don't measure up. But you are the God who comes and you meet us there. You show us your love. You show us your grace. You show us compassion. But more than anything, you show us what it means to know you, to have a Savior who has died and a Savior who is alive, who, who has conquered sin and death and hell. Oh, Lord, thank you for the gift that you've given, the gift of life and freedom. Lord, use us in the margins, we pray, even this week. Bring to mind, through your Spirit, just show us those that, that may be overlooked, those who may be shunned, those who we would even be tempted to, to shush instead of celebrate with your goodness and your grace. Use us, we pray, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.